Good morning, everybody. You're listening to X-Ray and on the phone right now. And we are by Zoom with Representative Brian Clem, who so far, just in the just in the couple of minutes that we've been on this Zoom call, right now he's got the GIMP uh, mask on. Just a moment ago, he was an avocado. Uh, it's Bane. Me. Oh, sorry, it's the Bane mask. It's the Bane mask. He, he was, uh, before an avocado, he was, in fact, a beaver. Uh, all I could see was his mouth and a beaver body. Uh, go Ducks. And it is a pleasure, though, still, although he's trying to play defense a little bit on the radio interview. By, he's trying to get in my head. It's wonderful to have Brian Clem on the air right now. How you doing, man? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Now he's a, now he's a duck, he turned himself into a duck face. First of all, I want to ask. I'm going to make it a little serious, real quick. Reflections on Mitch Greenlick. I loved Mitch. Um, you know, we had a little kind of um, you know we, we all knew that he was sick, and we had a little moment there in caucus during our March short session where we kind of talked with them and sort of said goodbye. You know, without directly saying goodbye it's like we hope you're you know you're going to recover but we we kind of heard and knew that it was pretty bad and it was very very touching um what i said to him uh was you are a honorary and i want to be like you someday because he was so independent um and so clever i mean i just sometimes i just watch him just shred witnesses <laughs> like we have this guy from the suntan association joseph levy come in to basically say that it was not dangerous at all to be in tanning beds and mitch had the most the zingers on this guy were so fantastic you know the guy like said something about you know you could drown in a bathtub or you could drown in a teaspoon of water sure you could get cancer and mitch just said well I think um, in my statistics class there was a there was a book called Li Figures Lie and Liars Figure, and I think you just said that I could die from going out in the sun. And the guy was speechless, and he was just such a he he was kind of a titan of the house. He he just he just was awesome. So a lot of us had a little mini wake right afterwards on Zoom, had a drink that night, and. Uh, told Mitch stories. And Harriet, of course, was his partner in crime this whole time in the legislature and took care of him when he had, you know, pretty serious injury and could barely, could barely even vote. So she's got kids and family that are taking care of her and, and she'll be fine. But we, we love the Green Lights greatly. Yeah, he was, uh, the people in the, the people in the legislature, and, and I haven't found some of the best rhetorical architecture to describe it but the best I've come up with is uh, wisdom that, uh, of, of people that uh, I looked up to who seem to be guided by a moral center uh, more than uh, any sort of political calculation. Uh, I, is there any member, and I know it, there's a risk perhaps of uh, overstating the recently passed, but was there any member who more exemplified following a, a moral North Star more than uh, power consideration than Representative Greenlee? You know, the only person who reminds me of kind of a young, a young Mitch Greenlee in that way is, 
when Jeff Merkley was speaker. You know, both of them had a very independent take on the legislature. Both were far more interested in good government than often, unfortunately, people in power are. And they did things that, you know, benefited the minority party actually quite often just out of a sense of good governance. And um, sometimes they get ridiculed for it. Like Merkley had these things called the teamwork bill, where if two members of each party both sponsored a bill, you were guaranteed a, a work session, a, a, a public hearing and a vote on your bill. And that immediately got thrown out as soon as he was gone. <laughs> yeah. Terrible. I loved it. But Mitch would, you know, Mitch would speak up in caucus too for, he had been in minority, had been in the majority, believed in good government. And um, there's just not that many people who kept that independent streak and didn't just do sort of what was easiest to get their agenda done. And, you know, Mitch cared about actually process. And I, I was a member of his committee. And then we also served on the land use committee under Mary Nolan together. And, um, and I just loved him. He, he just, he was very stubborn. He was very, very stubbornly independent. And, and that's what I liked about him. Like he did not march to anybody else's drumbeat. That's for sure. As we now have the election in the rearview mirror, we now pretty much know the results. Any, I mean, I want to ask you about the secretary of state's race uh, and some legislative races, but any, any races you were watching in particular or anything that really surprised you? And that can include something locally in Salem, you know, include whatever you want. But yeah, anything that particularly surprised you? Um, well, there's certainly, I, I don't know as much about the Portland area races as, as I do, you know, the statewide or the Salem races. I heard other people say the DA race in Port Multnomah County was just shocking to them. But I don't know the race. I don't know who had the most money. I don't know any of that kind of stuff to know if it was really that shocking. But but um, I understand the, the sort of reformist nature of the candidate who won, but I just don't know enough about the opponent or any of that stuff to say if it was shocking. It is. I, I was... There are multiple people I know pay attention who are surprised by the margin. But yeah. within, within weeks of the election, and I was talking to somebody who was a... a friend and supporter of Ethan Knight, the uh, U.S. attorney uh, who ran for the DA's position and lost. And they said, well, Ethan's going to lose. <laughs> and so it was, it was pretty well known uh, among some people that where the race, where the race was going. Uh, but, but I think if you would, if you had predicted it a year ago, yeah, I think people would have thought there's been this long succession of insider prosecutor yeah getting anointed as the next elected insider prosecutor and really if you go back harl haas and you go back uh, uh, shr uh shrunk i mean just for years so uh so that was but other races that were notable to you um well, honestly i was really shocked that mark Hass did as well as he did like i, I went to bed hearing he had won i was shocked i, I just the, the political infrastructure had aligned behind Shamia and the Democratic Party, so I didn't think he had a chance. And yeah. that was probably the most surprising to me. Um, we had a race in Salem that was interesting. It seems like the um, 
Latino guy, Jose, uh, he owns a real estate. He, it seems like he pulled it off, but there was a lady who like was a, you know, Salem's not a liberal town particularly, and she was a democratic socialist of America, you know, open arms, embracing kind of candidate, raised like 1500 bucks. This guy spent like 20 grand and she still almost beat him. Uh, she was ahead actually on election night. That was surprising to me. Um, but the progressives won three out of the four really hotly contested races here pretty handily, including Salem City, Salem City Council. What 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 race are we talking races are we talking about? Yeah, so you've got um, Trevor Phillips, an ER doc, beat a incumbent like twenty year incumbent city councilor, um, and then you had. Um, uh, Virginia Stapleton win in an open seat. She was the more progressive candidate. Vanessa Nordyke, more progressive candidate. And then this one that was surprising was like basically a tie. And it was a guy, you know, who ran a, a, a well-funded campaign versus somebody who didn't really have any resources. And she still almost won, like within five votes or 15 votes or something like that. So that was kind of shocking to me. How many seats on the Salem City Council? I think we have eight. And so now, how would you characterize the majority? Because Salem's been kind of an establishment town, yeah? Yeah, the, the progressives had a banner year in 2000 and had like a 6-2 majority and the mixed. But then for a long time, it was mixed. And then about, I guess, two years ago, actually, it turned into a pretty healthy progressive majority. And essentially, this election just replaced um, the people who were progressives who retired with more progressives. So I think that ideological mix stays the same roughly. Um, it's about a, you know, six two with Mayor Bennett, kind of a, a moderate to left, moderate left Democrat. And um, it's hard to tell what to make of some of the new people because we don't have any votes to go by in our campaigns are just the progressive, but they don't have particularly things that you could identify as policy platforms, you know, that I can tell. So Shamia, Oregonians now called it for Shamia, and you're right, the uh, day before that, they had called it for Mark Hass, some egg on their face. Uh, The, uh, what signal does it send now that that Shamia won, or is there any remnant signal that she almost lost? What are the, how do you read the, how do you read the tea leaves from that election? Well, I mean, it is interesting. Um, first of all, you had three strong candidates, right? So everybody got a pretty large chunk of the votes. It was, you know, even Jamie McLeod Skinner did quite well. And so I don't know if you can discern as much as you normally would as a head to head, like, did Jamie pull from Shamia on a women's vote issue? Did she pull from Mark as somebody who came from rural Oregon and, you know, otherwise he might have done better there, but Shamia grew up in Dufer. Like, it's really hard to to say. what the, I think the part that struck me the most wasn't the result. It was the endorsements. And if I'm, if I'm a legislator looking at this in the future, and I see that Mark Hass, I think, has a lifetime 100% voting record with about four different groups, um, you know, from the environment to NARAL. And I'm not even sure he got an interview at all. And yeah, yeah so that I'm like, oh boy, that's tough to swallow if you think I'm gonna have a fair shot with 
you know, a lifetime voting record of 100% at a, at a process, and you don't even get an interview. And why do you think that was? What do you think was going on? Well, the, the thing that made me wake up and, and notice was back when it wasn't Shamia, it was Jen Williamson. And when she announced, NARAL endorsed her the same day, no interview, uh, outright. And I'm guessing it was because Jen had really strong relationships. Um, she's been on their PAC board and she had carried lots of bills for NARAL recently. But still, it's a little disconcerting when you're a legislator, you know, pro-choice legislator, to not believe it's a fair process because you won't even get an interview if you're not somehow, I don't know what, if you're 100%, you're 100%. I don't know what else you do. So I think that's the, the tricky thing for people in my position, you know, looking at higher office, which I'm not at the moment at all. But if, if, if I was, I'd think, yeah, that's your you better know the right people in the right groups already because you're not going to get a shot in front of the membership or the pie board or the pack board. I, I, I besides a, a NARAL, actually, I can't, I guess I don't know for sure who did interviews and who did. All I know is Mark has a, you know, fantastic voting record on environmental issues. And I don't think he got that endorsement either. Um, and a few others like that. The PERS thing, obviously you can explain labor, public employee labor, especially, um, going with Shamia over that. I think um, Cameron thought he was going to be able to get in and stay in and win because of the PERS vote. Then when he didn't get one of the key public union endorsements, he dropped out, I think, the next day. Oh, yeah, remind people, Cameron, that, that, that dude, I think people didn't rem don't remember maybe he even ran. Yeah, he was the... Um, he was an agency head of a couple different agencies. I thought of him as the Veterans Affairs uh, agency head, but I think he also had a DCBS. He jumped in, was in for quite a while. You know, when he called me to ask for support, he was talking to me about the PERS vote, and he thought he had an angle there because he had no voting record. And then when Jen dropped out, Shamia comes in. She has a voting record of no on the PERS vote, so she gets the endorsement, and he left before filing day. What's the scuttlebutt around the caucus obviously there hasn't been a session yet but there have been presumably some zoom calls presumably you had some text back and forth maybe you know one-on-one -on -one phone calls around that the do you think that moving in in terms of the caucus dynamics uh, and i asked rob knows this question also uh but the do you think it moves in with uh with folks looking at it and saying okay well uh, they were too, uh, labor was a little too tough on our members. Like, like for instance, Rob knows labor organizer yeah. ends up get, he ends up drawing an opponent and most of public labor, nearly all the public labor supports his opponent. Right. And this is a guy with, you know, the strong labor background. Does that you think end up uh, weakening some of the relationship and, and weakening the sort of strong ties you know, very often in, and I'll say this again, you know, you'd be in a caucus meeting and it would, uh, and house leadership would describe SEIU, uh, OEA and AFSME, uh, typically in that order as our partners. Right. Yeah. Partners. And the, yeah. And, and so it was a, it was a pretty hand in glove relationship. And for those, and, and there for the, for some people interested in good governance, that could be concerning uh, moving into this next session, big budget, fights or big budget decisions to be made yeah. Yeah. you think that there that, that some of that hand in glove is 
you know, untethered a tiny bit? Or do you think now there are going to be so many members trying to kind of reclaim their relationship with those partners uh, that it'll be pretty much the same? That's a really good question. My gut tells me the latter. My yeah. gut tells me the latter. Um, you know, from a caucus standpoint, Rob's was the only one that we all watched. That was the only real race in, you know, in the legislature. And, um, you know, he won obviously overwhelmingly. It was high, high 60, some high 60s or something like that. But certainly people were aware that uh, the PAT, you know, gave his opponent 10 grand and endorsed him. Um, I think there was probably a sentiment that labor sort of sat on their hands, but did, for the most part, didn't like actively try and unseat anybody, including Rob. Um, yeah. And that clearly that they went all in for Shamia in a, I mean, she's a good candidate, a great speaker and a great story and all that too. But she was the one who could distinguish herself on the purse mode. So then if you go back to Greg McPherson twice, once for AG and once for, I think some race in Lake Oswego. Yeah. And, I guess it was city council or something. I forget what race it was. Yeah. May uh, either mayor or city council and then pass. I mean the, the, and then the, even Rob, the lesson they try and send is don't take us for granted. And if you cross us on that boat, you know, it's not going to be forgotten easily. Um, now, of course, I represent Salem, so I'm chock full public employees. So I've not been the most courageous person in the world, uh, you know, taking on labor because I represent a ton of labor in, in that issue. But I can personally, at least, I can see a lot of um, people who want to make amends if they can. You know, they felt it was necessary, particularly to get the tax bill passed that there needed to be purse adjustments or you wouldn't get Betsy Johnson and a few other people to vote for it. So I think they feel comfortable with what they did. And I don't think the message was, they're going to go all in against you. But I do think they're looking to say, hey, we're done with purse. We're not doing that again. Let's make up. The in that vote, when you look back to the dynamic, I mean, did you put out your marker pretty early? Because there was that uh, that almost out of a movie scene where Andrew Salinas, Representative Andrew Salinas, uh, votes no, and then it gets called into the principal's office. Tina Kotek talks to her, uh, and and she and, and Representative Salinas comes out and then switches her vote to yes, providing the needed majority. Uh, was it at all a surprise? But I suspect when when uh, Betsy Johnson and others were trying to make that uh, deal, there was presumably some assumption that Republicans would be a yes on the purge reform bill. I, I guess they just voted no to kind of stick it to Democrats. Uh, disabuse me of that notion if you want to. Did you put your marker saying, I'm a no early, and so they had to sort of count around you? Or what were the dynamics for those, what was it, something like six, six Democratic no votes? I think it started off as nine and it failed. And then instead of dropping the gavel and going for reconsideration, um, she held the gavel. And I think if I remember right, Mitch and Andrea were the two that, that switched their votes. And um, yeah, and I remember reading in the paper, I, for some reason I feel like I, I was there, but I didn't watch the drama with, with going into the office or not. But I think Andrea yeah. came, out, came out with tears in her eyes. I read in the paper or something. I didn't see that. Uh, I put my marker actually out in 2013. 
I was the only Democrat in the entire legislature, House or Senate, to vote against the 2013 purse cuts. And though, so nobody really bothered me about it this last time. But lots of other people got, got you know, heavy, heavy, heavy pressure to stick with the caucus. And um, for sure, no question about it. And, you know, there are people who believe that, you know, they lost their, uh, I can't remember what he was vice chair of, but, but judiciary or something. There are people who believe they lost their positions over that vote in, uh, in committees and things. You know, hard for me to to say exactly what um, went down in those negotiations, but there was, you know, there are people like Tiffany Mitchell who got elected um, largely with SEIU's help in a primary who voted for it. So there was a lot of sort of dynamic of we're all going up the hill here to get this thing done, and some of you aren't. And there were there was. Dis great disappointment by members who took that vote, who you know are huge allies of labor, spent their lifetimes working in the labor movement, and um, they took the vote, and then you know several people didn't, and um, I think it was awkward. It was a very awkward dynamic for a while, but for me it's easy. I just make it very clear: no chance, no way, not going to happen, impossible. You know, I have constituents, and I stay. I stick with my district. A few thousand votes ended up making the difference in that Secretary of State's race. Imagine those few thousand votes go the other way. And it wouldn't even have taken a few thousand. You flip 1,600 votes and that race goes the other way. What signal do you think other legislators, what signal do you think other sort of political watchers would have taken had Mark Hass pulled out the Secretary of State primary? Well, actually, there was lots of discussion that first night uh, where people thought he had in the next morning. Um, so the message that it's not totally dissuaded by by that outcome at all. The fact that he even got so close combined with Schrader's, you know, big win, Ted Wheeler outpacing so much. It was that the more center portion of the Democratic Party uh, prevailed, you know, pretty handily across the board. And you know there was a big Bernie versus Biden thing a long time ago in in COVID time, uh, you know two months ago that um, was a non-issue in Oregon. Um, and so you had moderates winning lots of races all over the place when there were two choices. So I think the fact that Mark did as well as he did um, probably sends a message that a more moderate member is not automatically going to lose a primary. Um, but that you still have to have, you know, a campaign resources, because I think he probably got outspent overwhelmingly from, from what I gathered. Um, I didn't look at their CNEs, but, you know, campaign finance makes a big difference. If, if, if labor or others don't have such an outsized um, spending advantage in races, then I think the message is you can still win a primary, even if you're a more moderate member. And I think that personally, I think that's a healthy thing. I don't think that it's you know we should not have a total purity test if we're going to be a big tent party and let's talk about that campaign finance reform the supreme court just said that states are allowed to do it and so now there's going to be a debate in the state house and the state senate about what that looks like in oregon it's going to be a it's going to be a robust debate and 
the in this race, and sure enough, right, I was talking to uh, was talking to somebody who was making some of those financial decisions on donations, and the cocktail napkin math that I got, if you add it up. They, I guess they weren't independent expenditures. They're in-kind contributions. We don't need independent expenditures right now because there are no statewide campaign finance limits until the Supreme Court rules that Measure 47 is law or until the legislature passes something uh, or until there's an initiative on the ballot statewide. Uh, but the cocktail napkin math is about three-quarters of a million dollars from public labor to Shamia. And, yeah, she outspent uh, Jamie and Mark by factor two to one. And, none of the, and by the way, I mean, for both of us, I mean, uh, we're going we're gonna to have a good heart-to-heart with Shamia on the air. Uh, I have a huge degree of, of respect and admiration for her. I think she was a fantastic candidate, uh, irrespective of, of any of this. But, but the money mattered, of course. And what do you think – the discussion is likely to be around campaign finance reform he, in, coming in the next session. Well, as you and I have talked a lot, um, I, I worry it's still going to be being in the majority means you get a lot more money than when you're in the minority, no matter who it is. And I worry it's still going to be the same forces that have been there for since I got there largely resisting um, campaign finance reform, but it's, I think, now essentially inevitable that there's going to be a plan. So it's not going to be no plan. You know, I mean, you and I have talked many times about, God, we need to do this uh, now while we're in charge because we're not going to have, you know, progressives aren't going to ever have the most money. So we need to change the rules now. Don't get you back, you're in charge and you can melt the lobby for money. You've got to change the rules and we just didn't do it. Then we lost a bunch of seats and now it's our chance again. Um, I think there will be, I just think it'll probably look probably something like the federal limits is my guess. You know, a couple thousand dollars per you know limit. The pushback is federal limits. Federal limits suck. Anybody thinks that the federal limits, uh, anybody looks at Congress already has the example of what a, what a decision-making body looks like under that regime. We can do better than that. Uh, I just set aside my journalism hat for a little advocacy. We're almost at the end of the interview. So I got, I got to lobby you a little bit. Uh, the budget. The, uh, the budget will be the biggest thing y'all talk about, right, coming in the session. It'll be oh, like yeah. the whole yeah. And one of the big decisions will be, uh, will there be just furloughed days will there, or will there be service cuts? Or will there be pay decreases, right? I mean, they'll, they'll be borrowing done. They'll maximize the borrowing, maximize the begging from the feds. Will uh, will you? There'll be some debates, presumably, over how much of the reserves to use. But but by the time we get through this recession, depression, all of those reserves will be used, right? There'll be there'll certainly be some discussions about revenue and what kind of revenue. Uh, on the revenue, any uh, any last thoughts before we go? Any last thoughts about what revenue? Uh, what tax considerations might come up. And then in terms of cuts, that choice between, okay, do you bring somebody to four days a week? Do you try to keep service levels high because service demands are going to be higher than ever? So you try to say, no, no, we're going to keep service levels up. I'm sorry, you're going to have to take a haircut and get paid a little bit less. Uh, or just cut employ- you know, cut workers entirely and, and reduce services that way. Any thoughts about how some of those puts and takes on the budget? Well, I've heard some discussion already about furloughing. Um, so I think there will be um, a greater likelihood that there would be furloughs 
than um, you know salary adjustments downward. Yeah. Typically, labor hasn't wanted that. Typically, labor will actually take less members of their union, which is a little odd, but keep the benefit levels protected. But furloughs end up being a way to sort of share the pain across the board with everybody who's currently already employed. I just don't know, you know, if the feds come through with money, I don't know if there will be as big a problem as we originally thought. Because we do have, I think, 1.6 billion in reserves. If the feds come through with more, and we can use a lot of the reimbursements we have, it may not be as brutal as, as we think. The big issue is will the economy recover? And right now, Oregon is woefully behind every other state in trying to make sure small businesses survive. And if they survive, there won't be as big a budget problems because they'll still be producing revenue. If they don't survive and all the chains basically get the economy, which is on Nightline last night, the big risk right now, if the chains all get all the money, and our small business backbone deteriorates to nothingness, we're gonna have massive budget problems for a really long time, not just like a one year. It's like, you know, 10 billion over the next three biennium is the projection. Now it'll be worse than that. You're listening to X-Ray FM, KXY Portland, KQAC, HD3 Portland, 107.1, 91.1 FM, streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. Representative Brian Clem, they're gonna kick us off the year, but not before I say thank you so much, man. Let's do this again soon. All right, let's just get your duck face. There you go. <laughs> I am looking. I'll, I'll hold the duck face up close to the radio so everybody can see your open mouth and a duck bill. Thank you, everybody, so much. You're listening to X-Ray. I'll turn it back over to Emily. And radio is yours. <laughs>